I do want to talk to you a little bit about the prison ministry that we have going. We have a number of men that go in there. Brother Girth goes in there, and Brother Wilson, Brother Seth, and Brother Chris, and myself. And uh, we, we don't talk much about it, and so sometimes I think as though uh, you or our church can kind of look at it as something that we do, something that uh, those five men are doing. But actually, it is uh, a work of, of the church, and I think that uh, you can become more involved in prayer and, and um, maybe eventually even get some training and go in with us. Or, but uh, the reason that there's not as much uh, fervor about this ministry is because we've not communicated to you much about it. But I do want to mention uh, one man today that you can pray for. His name is uh, Daniel Surkoff. And Daniel, uh, one year ago, uh, came into prison. He uh, got in some trouble with drugs, and he was going into a drug rehabilitation facility in uh, Delta. And uh, he still had some prescription grub, grub, drugs on him and tobacco, and I guess that's forbidden. Anyway, two other Russian men were going to report him, and so he killed him. And uh, when he first came in, he was very belligerent. Uh, he knew more than all of us knew and uh, ne never would, uh, didn't come consistently and never would take any literature or do any of our lessons that we give out, correspondence lessons. But um, something has changed. And one of, one of the ways we, we kind of can gauge some change in a person is that we sent, we sent through, uh, this kind of requirement of the chaplain in the prison, sent through a, a sheet of paper where they can put their name on, that they were there, and then also uh, leave a prayer request. And a lot of them, well, when, especially when they first come in, they'll say, pray that I could get my bail, you know, pray that I could, you know, for uh, my family or, and, uh, and so those are natural concerns, but they're not spiritual concerns. But, but then when we begin to see them putting notes down that says, you know, pray that I can know the Lord's will, or, or things along that line, then you, then you can see that something's happening. Well, uh, Mr. Surkoff continued to come, and he's been pretty faithful to come uh, week after week here lately. And uh, he uh, put on the paper this week something along the lines, pray for, that I can know the Lord's will. And also this week was the first time he ever took any of the literature that we pass out after we preach. And so uh, I'm pretty sure that he's in there for 99 years. He hasn't come to court yet. This is, uh, you need to understand that this facility is a pretrial facility. 
anybody that goes to trial and gets convicted doesn't stay here. They send them off to more of a permanent place. But pray for uh, Mr. Surkoff that the Lord would open up his heart. And, uh, and I would tell you that after COVID and after we went back in there, there's been, there's been almost a 180 degree turn about how the prisoners are listening and responding and uh, fellowshipping, you know, talking to us uh, before. Uh, there was a number of occasions I had to go to the door and say, you're out of here. <laughs> and, and here I am, and, you know, this old man telling people to leave when these guys are in there for some violent crime. Some of them, they could, you know, knock me in the head, but, but I have to throw them out because they're just disruptive. We haven't had to do that since uh, we went back in there. Some people get up and leave on their own. Uh, but uh, just pray for that ministry. It's the only, I'm going to probably take all my time here, but it's, a, it's the only place in the North Star Borough and all this part of Alaska where we go and get to preach from five to 20 men the gospel. We don't have to go to the, you know, we're not on a doorstep hoping that somebody open the door and talk to us. These guys are actually coming to hear us. And so over the years time, we get to talk to a lot of people about the Lord. And that's a real privilege and, and it's a real opportunity for our church. And so uh, just I, we would desire that you would be engaged from the pulpit, from the pew, as much as you're engaged in Noah George's ministry and just keep it before the Lord. All right, we're looking at the Beatitudes, which is the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. And we pointed out last week that the people that the Lord was speaking this sermon to was not only his disciples, but Luke tells us that there was a, a great multitude. And you see even in verse 1 here, chapter 5, seeing the multitudes, he went up to a mountain. And when he was set, he, his disciples came to him. But... Luke tells us that more than the disciples came to him. And so what is said in the Beatitudes are going to apply not only to the lost people, but also to his disciples. And so uh, these truths are uh, multifaceted and, and can be applied. Last week, we noted this uh, Verse 3, the first one, uh, we talked to you how that blessed means extremely happy. In fact, uh, when that word was written in the Greek Korne from which the New Testament was translated from, it was a kind of a happiness and a blessedness that only uh, people thought that the gods could ever come to. But he's saying, oh, it's possible for you. And he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And we talked to you about that word poor, how, it's, uh, how there was uh, two uh, words in the original language that when we bring it over into the English, you got to understand when you translate from one language to another language, sometimes things are lost because in some languages, one word will say a lot of things and in the English it may not say that much and we need to say, well, it means this is this. And so we're not trying to say, oh, we're great Greek scholars, because we're not. But we're trying just to define words. And this word, the, the, one of the words for poor was, you know, I have to work 
every day to make a living. And, and, and we talked about there's very few of us who could go months and months and months without some kind of income. And that's a word poor. But this word here, this poor here, blessed are the poor in spirit, was a word that meant I'm a destitute, I'm a beggar, I'm bankrupt, I'm, I'm someone, uh, you know, just begging for alms and, uh, and uh, sitting on the side of the road. And, and the only thing I can really do is cry out for help. Maybe I'm, uh, maybe some way that I'm uh, been scarred or, you know, maybe loss of limb or somehow these people that were called poor were unable to take care of themselves. And so here they are crying out, help me. And, and if we're going to come to the Lord, there has to come to a place where we understand spiritually uh, we're bankrupt. And that's what it's talking about here. It's not talking about being poor physically. There's not a blessing in being poor physically, but spiritually. And when I come to a place spiritually to understand I have no credit with God, I'm altogether unprofitable. I, I, have, I have no value that I can present to God. I can't come and say, Lord, I'll do this and this and this for you if you'll accept me. No, it's a poverty that's extreme. And the only thing that the, the, the beggars could do is cry out, help me. Well, somebody help me. And if you've, ever, if you've been born again, you came to a place in your heart to understand that you couldn't help yourself. And, and you cried out for help. Well, the, 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 it goes on in this, in this uh, kind of vein when it says, the verse 4, Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. And that seems to be a paradox. A paradox is defined as something absurd or contradictory. And uh, how can a person be blessed or be extremely happy when he's mourning? Can I be happy when I mourn over the loss of a loved one, when someone I love has died? Can I be happy over a calamity that may come to me or another that, you know, somebody's house burnt down. But this verse is not speaking of natural sorrow over financial loss or death or accidents, but it's speaking in a spiritual sense. And Alexander McLaren said this, I would say first that the mourners whom Christ pronounces blessed are those who are poor in spirit. The mourning is the emotion which follows upon that poverty. The one is the recognition of the true estimate of our own character and failings. The other is the feeling that follows upon that recognition. And so, basically, we'll see, we'll see this repeated again, but uh, I'll jump ahead here a, a little bit. But when the Bible says that the sorrow, the, the godly sorrow works repentance. It's kind of getting in this idea of mourning because as a 13-year-old boy, when I come to realize that I'm bankrupt, that I have no merit with God, that I'm altogether unprofitable, there's nothing to do with good, no, not one, And the Spirit of God was 
working on me, I realized that I was destitute, but I was, it just grieved me in my heart. I was uh, mourning that uh, I was exactly what the Bible said I was, altogether unprofitable, a sinner. And you see, uh, those just come in order. One is a realization of the fact that I'm poor in spirit, but the other is the outpouring of the heart once I realize the fact that I'm poor in spirit. And um, what's, so, what's so amazing about that is this. When I came to that point, and I realized that God would be just in sending me to hell that very moment. He saved me. And that morning had <laughs> turned into great joy. And so he's, he says, happy are the, the poor, or happy are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. And there was no comfort in my life ever like that morning that I was saved and I knew my sins were forgiven, that I was right with God, that I didn't have to go through one more Sunday when they sang that dreaded invitation song and they sang it and they sang it. And sometimes, sometimes that preacher would even sing it again. But all I wanted to do was get out of there. And after that morning of being saved the next Sunday, I said, let them sing it till one o'clock. I don't care. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm, I'm his and he is mine. And so there's a morning that ought to naturally follow a poverty of spirit. And uh, that's not uh, preached a lot uh, nowadays, but that nevertheless, that is the way of salvation. And in that, uh, in the little yellow box, in the multitude on that day were people from Tyre and Sidon. The region was a great commercial center. Both the cities were on the coast and rich in commerce. It was an area linked to sensuality and Baal worship. To these people of wealth and indulgences, Jesus is going to say, if you want to be happy, be poor in spirit and mourn over your sins. And somehow I repeated, I didn't uh, proofread this very good. Also, coming to hear Jesus were the legalistic Jews from Judea. It seemed that they had a rule for everything from washing of pots to giving of alms. Today they would be, be considered by some as outstanding church members. They held 613 commands in the Torah. Uh, we we uh, struggle with 10 commandments. Yet to these people, Jesus is going to say, if you want happiness that only the gods are said to have, then you need to become poor in spirit and mourn over your sin. And their, their religion was so, it was so binding. And even in our generation, People are seeking happiness. 
They're seeking happiness through people. If I can only get this guy to be my friend, if only that girl will marry me, then my life will be happy. Well, that doesn't always happen. Places, I want to go there. Things, events, new experiences. But happiness is found in being able to mourn over your sin because then it will be comforted. And as we've already said here, happiness is for the lost man who can mourn over his sins because forgiveness is soon to follow. And uh, we quoted uh, or mentioned, for godly sorrow worketh repentance. In Matthew 27, 3, the Bible says, Then Judas, which had betrayed him, when he saw that he was condemned, repented himself and brought again the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, Judas is said to have repented himself, that is, sorrow for the way that things had developed and the mess that he was in, but he was not sorry for mourning for his sins. And so, you know, if, if a person gets drunk and runs off the road and crashes his car, well, he's sorry. But he's, he's sorry because of the consequences that it brought about, not sorry for the actions. And so repentance is godly sorrow. It's sorrow directed towards God, sorrow that involves my, my sinful behavior before the Lord that I'm sorry about. And so we need to kind of keep that in mind. The great contrast between Simon and the mourning woman, if, you go, if we go over to Luke chapter 7, Luke chapter 7, I think this, this will be beneficial for you. In Luke chapter 7 and verse 36, And one of the Pharisees desired him, that is Jesus, that he would eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and sat down to, to meet. And behold, a woman in the city, which was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at meat in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster box of ointment. We don't have time to get into all that, but that was kind of like their dowry. It was kind of like their inheritance. It was what they would fall back onto if they ever became destitute. It was very expensive. And stood at his feet, behind him weeping, and began to wash his feet with, her, with tears, and did wipe them with the hairs of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed him with the ointment. Now when the Pharisees had bidden him, I saw it, he spake within himself, saying, This man, if he were a prophet, would have known who and what manner of woman this, man, this that touches him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Simon, I have somewhat to say unto thee. And he saith, Master, say on. There was a certain creditor which had two debtors, and one owed 500 pence and the other 50 when they had nothing to pay, he frankly forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him most? And Simon answered, said, I suppose that he to whom he forgave the most. And he said unto him, Thou hast rightly judged. And he turned unto the woman and said unto Simon, Seest thou this woman? I entered to thy house, thou gavest me no water for my feet, but she hath washed my feet with tears and wiped them with the hairs of her head. 
that gavest me no kiss. But this woman, since the time I came in, hath not ceased to kiss my feet. My head with oil thou didst not anoint, but this woman hath anointed my feet with ointment. Wherefore I send to thee her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loveth much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loveth little. And he said unto her, Thy sins are forgiven. And they that sat at meat with him began to say within themselves, Who is this that forgiveth sins also? And he said unto the woman, Thy faith has saved thee. Go in peace. We see the difference between Simon and this woman is that she saw her sins as many and great. Now let me tell you something. Simon's sins were no less. Just a different kind. But he didn't have the words spoken to him, thy sins be forgiven thee, because he was sufficient in himself. There was no poverty, there was no bankruptcy of the soul, and there was no mourning. And that's, a, that's what Matthew 5 is trying to get across to us, that happiness comes in squaring up with God. Happiness and joy and, and, and direction in life, purpose, is, uh, is through, through repentance. In Zechariah 12, at the bottom of the page there, the Lord speaks, and I'm just trying to bring out some scripture that would kind of uh, show you what he's talking about here, about mourning. And the Israel nation, uh, Israel as a nation had rejected Christ as their Lord and Savior. And yet there's going to come a day in the future when Israel is going to recognize what they've done they're going to be restored. Israel is going to have all the property from the Nile River up to the Euphrates River. And uh, as a, they're going to be, be a, a holy, forgiven people. And Zechariah speaks of that. And it says, And I will pour upon the house of David and upon the heavens of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication. And they shall look upon me whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn for him. Look upon uh, me, and they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son, and shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. And so, this mourning for their only son and bitterness it has to do with with. Uh, their sons' lives being taken. There's, a there's possibly no greater sorrow and bitterness of heart than that of a young couple who has waited and planned and anticipated for their first baby, for it to be stillborn. Or to mourn over their firstborn son, to have him, to have him, to hold him, to see him, grow, mature, have his whole life ahead of him, and then to be suddenly taken away. Uh, there's, uh, most of you don't know this name, but Michael Coulter did come here years ago. He's a pastor in Northern California. They support Brother George's ministry in Lebanon. 
but his son was in the late teens or maybe early 20s and was in a head-on collision and uh, was killed. And it devastated him. And what it's saying here is that there needs to be a sorrow as Israel is going to mourn, and their mourning is going to be serious mourning. They're going to realize that they had rejected the Messiah and that the Messiah had died for them. They're going to look upon him who they pierced, Isaiah says. But he was wounded for our transgression, he was bruised for our iniquity, and the chastisement of our peace upon him with his stripes we were healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And the desire of our hearts as Christians should be that, that uh, that that the Lord had laid on him the iniquity of us all. I am so grateful that God put my sin on Christ and he died for me. But I'm so sorry that when I sinned yesterday, he had to die for that sin too. There's a great thankfulness on one side, but there's a great grief on another side where my sins caused that to happen. And I think that those ought to be some of the thoughts of a man who is truly mourning over his sin. Have you ever in all your life been sorry for your sins? Do you understand that he died in your place? Do you understand that your heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked? Does it not bother you to know that all of your righteousnesses are filthy rags? Have you ever truly come to Christ broken mourning in your spirit? Well, if you haven't, you're not saved. And you have yet to experience the real happiness through the forgiveness of sins. And so that's the, th that would be the message that would penetrate the people that were there that day of the great multitude that knew not the Savior, that there ought to be the mourning. But also, this message was for his disciples that were, were saved. And blessed are they that mourn There's a real um, precarious position when we, as God's children, knowing right from wrong, are immersed in sin and just continue in it. As a child of God, we ought to grieve when we've uh, 
sin. Because here's what it's done. It's robbed God of the glory due to him. And my whole purpose in life, whether I eat or drink or whatsoever I do, is that I might bring glory to the Lord. And so let's look at this. The sin in the life of a Christian will leave him miserable, comfortless, and a wretched man. Look at the life of David. After he'd sinned with Bathsheba, he's a miserable man. When, when Nathan comes to him and gives that little story about some rich sheep uh, farmer had multitudes of sheep, went and took the only one lamb from, uh, from the man who had raised this one lamb was a sheep and he took it from him so he could feed his company. And when David found out about that, you see, what should have happened according to the scripture, is that man should have replaced the one lamb with five others. That was scripture. If you rob somebody, then you need to replace it with five other sheep. What did David say? David said, he needs to die. Well, what brought about that kind of attitude in David's heart? Because David was in sin. And David was a very bitter man in those times. And so, if we're not careful, we can become desensitized to sin. When you go to Romans 7, and uh, well, maybe we'll go over there in Romans chapter 7. In Romans chapter 7 is, where, is a passage where, where Paul says, you know, the things that I don't want to do, I find myself doing, and the things that I want to do, I find myself not doing. And he says in 7.13, Was then that which is good made death unto me, God forbid, but sin that it might appear sin, working death in me by that which is good, that sin by the commandment might become extremely civil. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal and sold under sin. For that which I do, I allow not, for I would that I do, for, for what I would, that do I not, but what I hate, that do I. If then I do that which I would not, I consent unto the law that it is good. Now there is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth within me. And, and, and eventually Paul's going to get down to chapter 8, and he's going to say that if we walk in the Spirit, we won't be controlled by that sin. But he said, in my life, in my natural being, those things that I want to do, I don't do. And the things that I do want to do, I'm not able to do. And so, so what happens in our lives sometimes, they say, well, you know, I'm just human. And chapter 7 of Romans says, you know, that what I want to desire to do, I fail to do. And what I don't want to do, I do. And uh, that's, just part of, that's just part of life. But you see there in verse 24, Paul said this, 
Oh, wretched man that I am. Who shall deliver me from this body of this death? How am I going to overcome this? How am I going to quit living in sin? And he gives us the great answer, as I said, in chapter 8. But the problem with ours, our lives is that we can, we can view pornography. We can cheat on our taxes. We can, you know, cut edges here. We can not keep our word. And uh, when the Spirit of God convicts us of those things, there's no wretchedness about us. And uh, until there is, there's not going to be any rejoicing. David said, weeping may endure for the night, but joy cometh in the morning. But that's the way it is with sin in our life. There's got to have to be weeping, and then their joy will come. First John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, that is, say the same thing God said about it, if we confess our sins, he is faithful to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so mourning is a direct result of being poor in spirit. C.H. Spurgeon at the bottom of the page, let a man once feel sin for half an hour, really feel its torture. And I warrant you, he would prefer to dwell in a pit of snakes than to live with his sins. If you can look on sin without sorrow, then you have never looked on Christ. Powerful words. Sinclair Lewis on the last page wrongly asked, is, is Jesus then giving us a word of general encouragement in what he says here? Assuring us that the sorrow will eventually abate is he saying, keep going, it will soon pass, time heals all wounds. That would be far too superficial of a reading of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is speaking about life in the kingdom of God. The poverty he describes as man's spirit, not his pocket. Similarly, the grief Jesus describes as man's mourning over his own sinfulness. It is regret that he has proved a disappointment to the Lord. Numbed by the discovery of poverty of spirit, he learns to grieve because of it. Here, then, is another characteristic of a Christian. He does not excuse his sin, or belittle it, or ignore it. But as with all spiritual graces, it is possible for us to be deceived about the real nature of this mourning. This mourning is not that he, he has a melancholic spirit, it's not low self-esteem. It's not going around feeling sorry for himself. No, a thousand times no. Those feelings stem from a man absorbed in himself. Rather, this morning is from a man who sees the altogether lovingness of God. 
to feel his kindness, to sense his love, to live in his long suffering and to know I have sinned against him. It is to this man God promises comfort. Some of the other places where this word mourn is used to kind of give us a better understanding of it. It's first used, the very first use of it was when Abraham mourned over the death of Sarah. And there's a kind of a rule in Bible study, the law of first mention. And when you find in the scripture a place where a word is first mentioned, it really kind of fills out for the rest of the Bible. And here, uh, what this word mourning had to do with Abraham's loss of Sarah. Next we find Jacob pouring his heart out, having been led to believe a beast had killed Joseph. Samuel mourned over Saul, David over Absalom. Of the nine terms used for sorrow, the one used here is the strongest and the most severe. It represents the deepest, most heartfelt grief and was generally reserved for grieving over death of a loved one. The word carries the idea of deep inner agony, which may or may not be expressed by outward weeping, wailing, or lamenting. It's a sorrow and a mourning that God must work in our hearts. Godly sorrow works repentance. David stopped hiding his sin and began mourning over it and confessing it. He would declare, When I kept silence, my bones waxed old through my roaring all the day long. For day and night my hand was hid upon me, my moisture is turned to the drought of summer. I acknowledge my sin unto thee, and my iniquity have I not hid. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord, and thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin. There also, not only should we mourn for original salvation, not only should we mourn over sin in our own life, but we should mourn for the sin in others. Um, maybe you're not you. I think you're not much different than me. But because we see sin so often in our society. We become uh, deadened to it. This will probably date me, but I remember during the Vietnam War, the very first time a man being killed was shown on television. And uh, the Viet Cong had captured someone. He's on his knees in the middle of the road. And they shot him in the head. And it was televised over television. It was a shock. But you know what? It ceased to be a shock. It's, it's, you see it all the time. We should be shocked and we should be mourning over the fact that there's, there's teenage and preteen children 
who have sexual dysphoria, or however they're pronouncing that. And they're changing their identity with operations, and their life is ruined forever. The sin abounds all around us. And Jesus, when he looked out on the multitude and saw them as sheep scattered without a shepherd, was moved to compassion. I think that we've lacked, we begin to lack compassion we ought to stand strong against sin but when we stand sometimes that's going to have to involve confrontation and uh I'm glad for those who had enough love for me and compassion for me that they confronted me with my sin. Blessed are those that mourn. It's hard to, I mean, it's hard to, it's hard to mourn for our country. And it's easy for us to say, well, they made their bed, let them sleep in it. But we all made our beds, didn't we? And salvation took us out of that. Thank God for people who can cry over other people's lives. I graduated from high school in 1968, went off to college, graduated in 72. And uh, when I went off to college, there wasn't a church in that college town like the one I came from, but there were churches I could have went to. But I lived in the dorm, got into the world. My buddies wanted to make sure that they took me places when I turned 21 in Oregon, the drinking age was 21. And before that, before I went off to college, I had surrendered to preach, not surrendered, (laughs) I'll take that back. I made a vocal that God had called me to preach. And from some advice to go to college, uh, you know, I can't blame them, but I went to college. I remember as I came home one, one weekend, uh, college was a couple hundred miles away, and so we didn't, I didn't come home every weekend. My sister was uh, there in the college too. She's a twin. But I came home, and I remember when it, it came to a head, something about maybe my call to the ministry or whatever, and... Uh, my mom, who's always concerned about 
what our boy was doing, I finally had to say, listen, that ain't happening. I've been living in the world. I've been drinking. And I'll never forget how the tears began to roll down her face. And it just happened at the same, same time period that the pastor of the church had came by to visit my, our family. And I told him the same thing. And I saw how his face turned ashen and how his heart was broken. And all I can say to you this morning is thank God for people who can cry over other people's sin. It made all the difference in the world in my life. And so the Lord says here, Blessed, extremely happy, are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. And if you can mourn over your sin, God will save you immediately as you call out to him. And you, a Christian, can mourn over your disobedience, over your half-baked Christian life. There's great comfort in knowing that you're in the will of God. And then let us not become armadillos or hides like a rhinoceros. And let us grieve over people who are in sin. Listen, hell is real. And hell's forever. And I think if you get down and put the bottom line in our own lives, the only real thing of value is that we're a child of the King. When I first studied these uh, parables, I mean these, these, not these parables, these Beatitudes, they're very challenging because it gets to the heart of the matter. But that's where we should function and serve in the Lord, okay? If you've not ever found yourself in a poverty of spirit, let me tell you, if you're not saved, you are. You're, you're spiritually bankrupt. And if you can come to mourn over that, there's great comfort. And as I said, when I did, the day I did, immediately, and turning to Christ and crying out to Christ, help me, Lord, help me. The greatest comfort in all the world flooded my soul. Okay? All right, you're dismissed. <laughs>